The word of our God, Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we want to handle it well and understand it rightly. But above all, we want to worship you and enjoy you for this word this morning. So we praise you and thank you for it and ask for your spirit to work understanding within us. For Jesus' sake, amen. I uh, was remembering this last week, uh, Saturday after Thanksgiving in the late 90s. It was a very cold Saturday morning. There was frost on the ground, and a group of us men from the church went out to, not this church, went out to, to set up a, a life-size nativity set on the, the property of our church. We had a wise men way off on one corner, and then we had the, a manger we set up on the other side uh, to show the distance because they weren't there that night. And, and we had shepherds and so forth, and all these life-size figures, and the ground had already frozen, so we're trying to hammer this manger into place on the cold ground. And uh, one individual showed up. We were a little surprised he came. He wasn't usually around for holiday, church holiday events, and he just stood there with his hands in his pockets and didn't help any. And the whole time we were struggling to put this thing up, he was informing us that there were no inns in Israel when Christ was on earth. The Jews were hospitality people. There were no inns. You put people up in your house and your whole community was shamed if you didn't put them up in your house. There were no inns. So, the way we think of Christmas is all wrong. That I, I'd love to say that was the only time in my life I've heard uh, a discussion of this question of no room at the inn. But it was just one of many. Every year or two, I hear from someone. Sometimes it's someone aggressive like that coming and trying to inform me uh, what's wrong. Sometimes it's something like, I, I don't know, who exactly do these things, 60 Minutes or National Geographic or maybe Biography Channel or something, uh, who, who will do a thing around Christmas about the nativity and about Christ, and they'll call this into question. Well, we've got to set this, the facts straight. It's not always, though, people who don't believe the biblical records. There are also people who have a question about the inn, 
that's not about the historicity of what God is saying here, but it has to do with whether we've translated the word right. And so, for example, this year, two of the books, as I start preaching on Luke, I wanted to read some new commentaries I'd never read, and I purchased one by one of my favorite Reformed commentators who's alive, Dale Ralph Davis. And every Christmas I try to read some new Christmas Advent devotional so that I can keep fresh myself as I preach on Advent things. And I picked up Christopher Ashes. I forget what the title is, but it's great. And if you are one of the people who buys one every year, you should buy that one if you haven't. Um, two really good books. And both of them, though, say, well, in is a bad translation. It wouldn't have been an in. Uh, that they say, well, there's another word that always means in. And the, the story of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, uses that word in Luke. But this word uh, could mean in, but it, it probably means an upper room. Yeah, just, just like the upper room, right? Same word, upper room. So a rented room in someone's house. I'd love to just say at this point, who cares about any of these things I've just said? And, and let's move on. Uh, but if I hear all these things, and if I read these things, I think it's good for, for you, in case you come across these things, to also have an answer, if there needs to be an answer. And so let's take a moment to think about, was there no inn for a room? Let's think about the first of those kind of attacks, the, the historicity. There were no inns in Israel. Well, that's just blatantly not a true statement. The true part of the thought is Israelites hypothetically shouldn't have had any need for an inn because they were supposed to be hospitable. But we know very well that that hospitality often only went as far as other Jews. And what Pharisee is going to put a Samaritan up in their house? What Pharisee is going to put a Roman, unless they're forced into it, and then they're going to be bitter and upset the whole time? Hospitality rarely went beyond Israel itself. We also know that Israel didn't rule the land of Canaan at this period of time. And wherever the Romans went, certain things followed. The Romans went, they built roads. When they were building roads, the people building the road had to stay somewhere. So they tended to build or commission the building of inns. Or uh, some people think of it almost more like a, a temporary caravan type of inn outside of a town. Uh, but they still had to establish these things, and often these would remain permanently after the road was built because troops were still going to pass through and Roman officials were going to pass through. The Roman government was always replacing officials. And so they had to have places for them to stay as they were being sent out as ambassadors. And uh, merchants were a big deal to Rome, and so they wanted places for the merchants to stay as well. And we actually know that there were inns in Israel because Josephus writes about a specific inn that was halfway between Jerusalem and Jericho, which is right around where Jesus talks 
about a Samaritan taking a beaten up Israelite and putting him up in an inn. So we know that there were inns. That doesn't prove that there was an inn in Bethlehem. But let's at least be clear about what is or isn't historical. There may not have been an inn in Bethlehem, but there were inns in Israel. Well, what about the other challenge that it's not the right translation? That instead of there was no room in the inn, it should be translated, there was no upper room for rent. I think that's kind of what that argument is saying. That we should translate it something like, there was no available upper room to rent. And so they had to stay downstairs in the area where you'd have your household uh, cows or whatever. Well, that, it's true that the word itself isn't always used for N, but I think that's being, being taken and, and used too strongly. Sometimes we say, well, it could mean this other thing, therefore it can't mean N. And here's the reality. I pulled five lexicons off my shelf this week, and every single one of them, the first word to define this Greek word was N. Now, I, I'm, I may be getting foggy on a lot of the research things I learned in high school, but I think that when you pull a dictionary off the shelf, the first definition is typically the most used definition. And I, I think, so just to write off in is being a little flippant being a little flippant. It could mean upper room. It could be rented room. It could also mean in. So I, I just think we, we should be aware of these things. Now, what difference would it make? We might ask, what difference if it's not an in, but an upper room? And here's the only distinction I think there might be. If it's an in, it's probably owned and run and inhabited by Gentiles. If it's an upper room, it's probably in a Jewish house and therefore thought more highly of. So the only difference that would be made to the, the account we're being told would be this question. How desperate is Joseph? Either way, he gets to Bethlehem with his three uh, or his, his third trimester wife. And there's no relative willing to put them up. Now, maybe they got there late. Because when your wife's pregnant, it's harder to move as quickly, right? You've got to make more stops, maybe. So maybe they get there and just everything's full because everyone else came. It could be they got there and people, people knew that Mary had been pregnant before Joseph went ahead and took her as wife. And they didn't want them in their house. But whatever the case is, there's no hospitality available for them. And Joseph has to turn his thoughts towards renting a place. Shameful thing that they would have to rent a place. From another Jew, that's sad. But if it was an actual inn, that's 
disgraceful. Staying with Gentiles when you're in the town of David, disgraceful. Either way, there's nothing for him to rent. So it may feel like a very small distinction, doesn't it? Either way, there's nowhere for him to rent. Depending on how we understand it, he may be so desperate, he's looking at going somewhere that some, some Israelites might view as almost ceremonially unclean. Why does the Holy Spirit emphasize that there are no rentals? You can pick either translation. Rented upper room, fine. In, fine. Either way, the Holy Spirit's emphasizing there are no rentals available. Why do we care? How does that affect the story? Is it just to get a little sympathy out of the audience? Oh, he was born out out in this shed, which was probably the first floor of whatever building it was anyway. No, the Holy Spirit is emphasizing to us the journey of the Son of God in humiliation. The journey of God the Son in his humiliation. Now, it didn't start with the manger. It started with the conception in the virgin's womb. And it doesn't end with the manger. It ends in a tomb. But this is a powerful moment that the Holy Spirit is using to show us the humiliation of the Son of God. Reflect on that humiliation with me this morning. God, the creator, Genesis 1, we read that he created all things by the word of his power in the space of six days, all very good. What's one part of the very good? Well, on one of the days, he creates fish and birds. And when those fish and birds come into existence, they didn't come into existence in a void. They came into existence, the fish in water, and the birds with air. They came into existence with natural habitat, natural homes for them. Another day, God creates the beasts, all things that go along the face of the ground. When they are created, there is ground. Ground that's separate from from the air, from the water, from the other habitats. They, in other words, come into a home. And even when he creates then the pinnacle of creation, man made in his image, Adam and Eve are not created out of dust, out in a wilderness void, and left to create something for themselves, a home. No, Genesis 2 shows us that he created Adam and Eve out of the dust of the ground. He created Adam and formed Eve out of Adam and placed them in a paradise with fruit trees all over the place that were good for eating, where there was no cold at night afflicting them, nor sun burning them during the day, and there were no enemies, no Vicious beasts there, except, of course, one serpent that came in. 
They're there in a paradise which he has created as their home, over which he has put them as the, the king and queen regent with authority. And had Adam wanted to, had he been more faithful, I'm not trying to put this flippantly, but Adam could have taken that snake by the neck and said, get out of my house. But he didn't. But think of this. God creates all he created. All living things were created into a home. And when we consider then John 1 about this God, in the beginning was the word. He was with God. He was God. And he became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled or tented among us. Why did he have to tent? There was nowhere for him to have a home. And so Luke informs us there wasn't even a place that night, that first night, a warm, comfortable place to rent for the Creator. The distance between God and the creation is so vast. Had Christ been born in the nicest room in Caesar's home in Rome, it still would have been humiliating. Had he been born today in the Lincoln suite at the White House or in the best room at Trump Tower or in Putin's mansion or in Buckingham Palace, it would still be utterly humiliating for the Son of God. But how committed was God the Son to this act of humiliation? He didn't come into Caesar's palace or Herod's. He chose the most humiliating to be put in a beast's trough because there was nowhere they could receive hospitality and nowhere to rent in the community. He came to his own. Yes, he even came to Bethlehem, the city of David. The long-awaited son of David could not find a home. And this humiliation does not end on that first night. Now, when we read in Matthew 2 and find that when eventually the wise men get there within six months to two and a half years probably, the the wise men get there and they they find them in a home. That's short-lived. Christ, even at that young age, has to become a, a refugee, fleeing from the promised land to Egypt of all places. And don't think that being a refugee back then was something glamorous compared to what it is today. Look at what it is like. It's not hard in our day. Five, five, ten years ago, I would have said, look at places where Syrians were fleeing. Now I, I can say, just look at where Ukrainians are fleeing. What types of conditions... How glamorous it must be for them to lose everything and leave everything 
and be somewhere where they do not have a home unless it's opened to them. So this was Christ's condition. How important this is to remember. We don't have a lot of refugees that I'm aware of in our community here, but if we encounter them, when we have the opportunity to encounter those who are dispossessed and displaced, we have a gospel of a Savior who didn't just condescendingly say, I'll save you from my palace up here, but who left his heavenly throne and became himself a refugee. He knows what it is to be fleeing for your life. He knows what it is like to be the person out of place. What a glorious gospel that is. But his humiliation doesn't even end there. They come back from Egypt. They come to Nazareth. We know that for a big part of his life, he did have a home. His parents were able to raise him under a roof. In Nazareth. In the most despised community in Israel. Can anything good come from there? You you could fill in, depending on what part of the country you live in, you could fill in any number of neighborhoods to get the idea, right? I'm I'm not going to. I'm not, definitely not going to with our community. Uh, give a neighborhood. But you, you get the point, right? And again, what a glorious gospel for us to use in evangelizing the, the lost, that the Savior, oh, for people who so often think no one else can understand my experience because you didn't grow up, fill in the blank. And here's the Savior who knows what it is to grow up in the worst, despised neighborhood and have people not even think about who you are, but say instead, just based on where you grew up, can anything good come from there? But his humiliation doesn't end there either. He comes to his public ministry, three and a half years. And what did that ministry look like? Was it this moment where he appears out of the wilderness following John and everyone gathers together and builds a a, a palace on the outskirts of Jerusalem, one at odds with Herod's palace, one grander than Herod the Great could conceive of. And from there he dispenses justice and care for the poor. No, Luke 9, 58, Jesus tells us his living conditions. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And even there, don't you think Christ is wanting us to reflect on why foxes have dens? And why birds have nests? Because he created them and gave them. But when he became man, he had no place to lay his head. 
Of course, that's, that's not the end of the story of his humiliation either. Christ's humiliation through all of this homelessness, this loss, this, this public scorn and derision is only moving towards the greatest humiliation. The cursed death of the cross. The experience of the Father's wrath against sin. And the punishment for sin, including death. As the Catechism so beautifully puts it, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. But does it all end there? Of course it doesn't. This humiliation doesn't end with humiliation. He remained under the power of death for a time. Three days, in fact. Does it end there? Christ's account of humiliation leads to things that are high. His humiliation from birth to the tomb leads to us being raised from poverty to riches. I know I mentioned this text last Sunday night, but it's worth hearing over and over again. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He came down so that you might be raised up. His humiliation. And so how powerful it is to know that he went through all those stages of humiliation so that he might tell us in Hebrews that you have a great high priest who is able to sympathize. And not just sympathize from the outside. Oh, it must be really hard to flee your own country. It must be really hard to be born in a, in a shed. It must be really hard to have to rely on others all the time because you don't have a home. No. One who is able to sympathize from experience. What have we experienced that he did not There's nothing. And there's something he experienced that we need not. The wrath of God against our sin. His humiliation makes us rich. It raises us high indeed. That's why we sing. Maybe we should sing a little more often. For me, dear Jesus was thine incarnation, thy mortal sorrow, and thy life's oblation, thy death of anguish, and thy bitter passion for my salvation. He came low in humiliation that we might be lifted high. And his humiliation also 
ends with him being raised high. His humiliation can't be the end of the story. In fact, Philippians 2 informs us of the only possible response God the Father could have to one who is so completely righteous and obedient in all his humiliation. We read there, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. I've occasionally struggled, not with believing this, but with how to express it. How, how, How is it we talk about Christ being given something? That as eternal God, we should be saying was always his. And this last week I read so beautifully phrased by John Murray. This is a paraphrase, not a quote. You'll have to go read John Murray to hear how beautiful he put it. But he connected the dots for me. And the dot that connects everything is the humiliation of Christ. He says, Jesus had the name above every name. Had the exaltation, the glory, the blessing, the honor. Philippians 2 is not telling us he gave up being God. It's telling us he gave up what was his by right. His, from his very essence, in terms of the glory and honor and power and authority of his name. He gave that up without ceasing to be God. He humbled himself, humiliated himself, He had all those things. And after his humiliation, God says to him, now you've earned it too. It was his by right of who he is. He gave up the right of who he was to that honor. And then he earned it all back again. What a humiliation leading to what an exaltation. Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Yes, there was no inn. There was no rented room for him. No hospitality for him. But he's not homeless anymore. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory. What a thought. He's there in power in the heavenly places. He has a home. And because he has gone there, he says, I I go to prepare a place for you. So that for all eternity, you will never be homeless if you are in Christ. 
What a way to end evangelism to the displaced. To the many in our own community who are homeless. That the gospel ends with you never being homeless for all eternity when Christ returns. He has prepared an exquisite delight for us so that we might come home to the Father.